This week I read a news article by author Lauren Green. It was written March 20th. It was put on Fox News. In that article, she referenced a survey. And in that survey, she found that three out of five people employed in America believe that talking about their religious beliefs or political beliefs at work will result in negative repercussions. Three out of five. In the same survey, one out of four people said they had witnessed that at their workplace. She talked about Dr. James Spencer, who's president of the D.L. Moody Center in Massachusetts. He said he believes we are currently living out George Orwell's 1984. And it's not so much that Christians in the West are being controlled by external forces, but by being lulled into accepting ideas that go against Christ and Christianity by the slow reorientation of one's beliefs. And I like what he said. He said, Christians need to be like a dam holding back water. There's all this pressure that's coming against it, and the dam just needs to hold its shape. Much of that pressure throughout our world comes in the form of persecution against those who choose to faithfully follow Jesus Christ. I, I refer again to what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, 12. Now, I want you to listen closely to his wording. He said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does he say all who know something up here or believe something up here will be persecuted? No, he says all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's, it's those for whom the, the belief goes from here to here, to the words we say. The belief goes from here to here, to, to the things we do. He says you will be persecuted. My, my dad used a, an analogy that's been used about the church a couple weeks ago. He said we're thankful to be a, aboard the battleship church next door. He said, it's not a cruise ship, and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's a fitting analogy for the church as we navigate our way through a fallen world. And as Jesus continues to prepare his guys and the church today for our mission in this fallen world, he's going to lead them and us to three choices that every faithful follower of Jesus Christ needs to make. The first one is, will we, will we choose to face our fears second will we choose in his power to walk worthy of the savior who gave his life for us and the third is will we choose to remember the reward that's coming in eternity for those who faithfully follow jesus i want to start with that first one will we choose to face our fears He's talking particularly about, about one fear that we can all relate to. It's, it's, it's do not fear men. See, I love the Bible because it doesn't deny fear. In fact, 
some have said it over 300 times in the Bible, you'll come across some form of the phrase, do not fear. Because God knows it's a real issue for you and I as we walk through this fallen world. Particularly here, do not fear men. Why? Proverbs 29, 25 gets to the point. Fear of man will prove to be a snare. Why is that? Most of us like to be liked, right? We don't like to be unliked. We don't like conflict. And some of you have heard, heard me talk about a, a youth sponsor who helped out in my youth group growing up. I'll never forget him partially because he's like six foot six and he, he wore a big gold chain. But he drove something into us over and over. I'll never forget. He said, if you're pleasing God, it don't matter who you displease. If you're displeasing God, it don't matter who you please. I never forgot that. That's what Jesus is getting at, Matthew 10, 26 here. Don't fear men. He says, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And here's the first reason not, not to fear men. Because all will be revealed in time. Right will be recognized as right and wrong will be recognized as wrong in time. You need to hear that because we live in a world where it's all topsy-turvy, right? We live in a world like Isaiah 520 where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In a context like that, it's, it can be frightening to stand on the side of right. But what Jesus is saying here, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Right will be revealed for right and wrong for wrong. It's like that Christmas song Aaron sang for us at our Christmas service. I heard the bells on Christmas Day as the author looked at the, the havoc this civil war was wreaking on our country and the angst that his own family went through. But he came to that one verse. Then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. All will be revealed. So hold on now. Do not fear men because all will be revealed in time. He goes on. Verse 27 to say, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Don't give in to fear. That will keep you silent to share the gospel. When he says proclaim it on the housetops, I think about that. And I'm like, the only time I proclaim anything on my housetop is when it's Christmas time and I'm up on my roof and maybe a neighbor's out decorating their house and says, hey, how's it going, Warren, right? <laughs> we don't hang out a lot on our roofs, mostly because most of them are like this. It was different in this culture. You know, a lot of the roofs were, were flat. That's why in Proverbs... It's written that it's better to hang out on the corner of a roof than with a contentious woman. Don't amen, guys. <laughs> and I got to acknowledge, if Proverbs had been written by a woman, she probably would have said the same thing about men, right? But why would you hang out on a roof? Because they were flat. 
And often people went up there to have conversations with neighbors and stuff. Proclaim it on the housetops. He's saying, hey, when you're hanging out on that housetop with the people you know, you be bold. And you share the good news of Jesus. Might not be the housetop today for you. It might be the park where you take your kids. It might be that water cooler at work. It might be your cul-de-sac. But proclaim it without fear. Another reason not to fear men. Because man is not the judge of your eternal destiny. God is. Verse 28, that's what Jesus is getting at here. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is the judge of our destiny. He tells us to fear him. But I'll quickly move to the third point, which you may find comforting in light of that. Don't fear men because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the judge is also your father who loves you dearly. Your father who is completely sovereign over all things. He's in control. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Maybe you're like me. You've, you found sparrows in your backyard a time or two. Maybe they crash into your, your, your sliding glass door, right? And if you're like me, you don't think much about it. There's a rather unceremonious disposal where you pick them up in a shovel and drop them in the garbage can, right? Because it's a sparrow. But listen to what what Jesus says here, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He is, he is completely sovereign for the lives of even those sparrows. Of course he's in control of the lives of his children. Not only that, he intimately knows you. Verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. You're like me, as I've shared before, that number's changing all the time. But God knows. God knows. How about intimate knowledge of you? He intimately knows you. Your father knows you, knows what you're going through, and he greatly values you. Verse 31, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. One final reason not to fear men, because man is not your mediator to the father. Jesus is. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 32. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I promise when you and I stand before Jesus one day, we will not give one fig for what the people down here thought about us. At that moment, we're going to think a whole lot about what we did with the offer of salvation by trusting Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Think of a man named Hugh Latimer. He lived at a time where the government, the king, tried to control the church. Hugh Latimer read his Bible and said, this disagrees with what you're saying, and he boldly preached it. One time he found himself in a pickle. He was at the pulpit ready to preach and he looked out and he saw King Henry in the crowd 
And he knew some of what he had to share would ruffle King Henry's feather. So out loud, he said to himself, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. Henry the king is here. He said that out loud. Then he paused. And he also went on to say, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. You and I face that same choice as we walk through this world. Am I living to please this person in front of me or the, the king of kings? The Bible doesn't deny fear. It says admit it and look through what you're afraid of to a God who's bigger. It's been well said that a healthy biblical fear of God is the one fear that will eliminate every other fear. Got to make that choice to face our fear. Second choice, will we choose to walk worthy of the Savior who gave his life for us? We have to make this choice because Jesus is divisive. Jesus is divisive. That's what he talks about in verse 34. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why is Jesus divisive? Well, for the simple reason that some will believe and follow him and some in this world will not. And as we saw with Latimer and King Henry, Jesus threatens the control of those who do not want to give their control up. That's one reason he's divisive. Another reason, have you, have you ever asked, like, we have this wonderful good news of Jesus, that he died for my sins, rose again, and if I put my faith in him, repent of my sins and turn to him in faith, I have a relationship with the God of the universe. What a, what a wonderful message. What in the world about that makes it divisive? Well, Dave, at our elders meeting on Monday, brought up one of the key reasons it's divisive. It's that the same gospel that offers hope requires humility of proud men, a humility that says, I can do nothing to save myself. Which if you look at every other religion in this world, they say some form of that. You do this and you'll be saved. The cross says, no, Jesus did the work. It is finished. You admit you're a sinner in need of a savior. It requires humility. That makes it divisive. So in that world, we got to make a couple choices. As his followers, we got to choose our first love. What love in my life is most important to me? The first question related to that is, is it Jesus or is it another person? He gets right to it in verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We're called to love our parents. We're called to love our children. But he's saying, look, your love for me must be supreme. These words would be crazy from any other teacher. 
This is the Messiah, the Son of God, the only one who can rightfully say those words. You must love me more than you love your wife and your children, your parents, anyone else. John Bunyan knew this choice. Many of us appreciate the Pilgrim's Progress. We talked about it a lot last year. Most of you know he wrote that from prison because he pastored a church at a time where the government, again, was saying, this is what the church must teach. This is where the church must meet. And if you teach differently, you'll be punished. He compared the word of God to what they were saying, said, no, our church is going to continue to meet. And he continued to preach. And he was thrown in prison where he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, how many of us are thankful that he did? But have you ever thought about the cost to him and his family? He wrote about that. I want you to hear his own words. He said, the parting with my wife and poor children has been to me as the pulling of my flesh from my bones. The many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child. Oh, the thought of the hardship. I thought my blind one might go under, but yet thought I, I must venture you all with God. So he's saying, I must put you all in God's hands as much as I love you. I love Jesus supremely. As much as I love you, I know he will care for you. <laughs> Who's your first love? Is it Jesus or another person? Second question may be more uncomfortable. Is it Jesus or myself? Verse 38, Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. When Jesus spoke those words, the cross was not a gold piece of jewelry around a neck. His listeners knew well. There was, there was an uprising against Rome and a, a Roman general had crucified 2,000 Jews along the road to Galilee. The cross was an instrument of death. These people knew it, and they knew when they saw someone bearing a cross, they were under the authority of Rome. When we take up our cross and follow Jesus, even to the point of death and dying to self, we are saying we are under his authority. We are not our own. We are bought at a price. He goes on in verse 39 to say, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. One man wrote about this verse in a way that, that got to me this week. I want you to listen to the way he put it. There are things which are worse than death, and disloyalty is one of them. If a man is guilty of disloyalty, if he buys security at the expense of dishonor, life is no longer tolerable. He cannot face men. He cannot face himself. And ultimately, he cannot face God. There are times when comfort, safety, and life itself can cost too much. You see the choice he's putting before his followers. Will we choose to face our fears? Will we choose to walk worthy of the King of kings and Lord of lords? Final of the three choices. Will we choose to remember the eternal reward? for those who faithfully follow him. That's a choice because 
how many times do we find ourselves living here in regardless of what we say we believe we live as though this is all there is it feels sometimes like this is all there is especially if we're suffering right I met with someone this week going through some ongoing suffering, a, a young gal and her dad, and her question was one that grabbed my heart, and maybe it'll grab yours. She has seizures on an ongoing basis, and her question is, I know God can heal me, but why hasn't he? I told her, I got to be honest, I don't know why he hasn't chosen to. But her, as we, as we sat there, her dad and I, also poured some things to hold on to even in the unknowing and one of those things was look sometimes this world feels like forever but one day there's a day coming where all your tears are going to be wiped away all your suffering will be a thing of the past because you're you're a daughter of the king and we talked about that old analogy of sand on the beach you know, if, if this life here is one grain of sand, we told her, then eternity, where you enjoy that bliss with your father and no more suffering, is like all the grains of sand on all the beaches in all the world. So even if he doesn't say yes this side, hold on to that. Let that give you hope. We have to make that same choice to remember that eternal rewards if we're going to be willing to experience persecution for Jesus here. Jesus had talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Remember the reward. In chapter 10, he reminds us that there's also a cost of, of welcoming and associating with Jesus and his messengers. The people Matthew was writing to knew this. We know this from the Gospel of John. You remember the blind man that Jesus healed? And the leaders want to know how it happened, and he kept saying it was Jesus. You remember what they did? They, they booted him out of the synagogue, broke off all meaningful societal connections for that man. And you remember his parents? They went and asked his parents, what happened here? And what'd they say? Ask, ask our son, he knows. And do you remember why John says they did that? Because they were afraid. They would be booted out of the synagogue. There's a cost for welcoming Jesus and his messengers. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews wrote that to a church that was being persecuted. Some of them had been locked up for their faith. And he had to encourage them, Hebrews 13, 3, to spur them on. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Why'd they have to be reminded of that and spurred to that? Because for them to go down and love on that brother or sister in prison by taking a meal or spending time with them would let the authorities know this one is on the same team with Jesus. There was a cost to that, right? 
But Jesus reminds them that there's a reward for those who live for Jesus and receive, associate with his messengers. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You see the connection? You welcome Jesus, messenger. You welcome Jesus. You welcome Jesus. You welcome the Father. That's how important God sees this. Verse 41, the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. One who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Verse 42, many of you know it. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Cup of cold water because he's a disciple of who? A disciple of Jesus. Remember the reward. As I think about those three choices, I want to close our time this morning by sharing about a brother who is living this out today in Bangladesh. Just read about him recently in Voice of the Martyrs. And I would not share this except for the fact that he's already well known by the authorities over there. What I'm about to share is no secret to the authorities in Bangladesh. If you could put up our slide there, Stetson. I want to introduce you to Omar. Omar was saved when he was 21 years old. The way he got saved, a believer came to him and presented a tract about Jesus Christ. And, and he said he read it for 20 minutes as that believer waited next to him. After he finished reading, the believer said, Omar, do you have any questions? His question was, where am I in this? He said that was the first time he had read or heard that Jesus had died for him. He knew nothing of Jesus in that regard before that. So he went and bought a Bible. And he says he read that Bible. One verse jumped out at him repeatedly, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He said, after that, I decided to move from Islam to Christ. He's now 42 years old, but he described that first five years after getting saved as living in a wilderness, alone in, in regards to other people. He knew not one other Christian. He says, lifeline to God during that time was to sing and pray the book of Psalms, that, that fellowship with God. One day he was reading the Gospel of Matthew that we're going through. He came to Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, go and make disciples. And he said, I realized that making disciples is the highest form of worship. So he took Jesus up on that. And he went to tell his family about Jesus. His mother grew irate. She only knew Jesus as a prophet, right? But his father and his brothers took it to a whole nother level. They, they kicked him out of the house. They disowned him. And in his own words, he said, I felt so hurt. They are my family. He worked on buses for a living. And he realized that riding on those buses would be a great opportunity to share of Jesus. His own words again, he said, it was like I became addicted to telling people about Jesus. I felt good when I could share. He said, many listened, few believed. 
co-workers told him repeatedly to stop and call him names. And he said, I never considered stopping. His own words again, my job is to keep telling people. I don't know who's going to accept it. Only God knows that. 2014, a stranger showed up and said, I'd love to hear what you've been sharing. So he met with the stranger and some others. And when he met with them, Omar brought a Koran and a Bible to show that group the difference between the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of the Koran. One of the men angrily got up, grabbed the Koran, and, and tore it in half. Say, why would he do that? Well, the next day it became obvious. Five police showed up at Omar's place and arrested him for tearing up a Koran. He had been framed. They would not believe his explanation. They went on to ask him, why are you spreading Christianity? And listen to his answer to the authorities. He said, I'm a sinner. I need a savior in my life. They arrested him. They blindfolded him. They tortured him. He said they tied his wrists and ankles behind his back and tied him from his feet from a rope upside down and beat him. He said the scariest thing was when I was spinning. I want you to listen to his words again. He said, when I was getting beaten and tortured, I felt more peace in God. I felt some of the pain that Jesus did when he died for us. This went on for four days. They released him to a hospital where they found fractured discs in his spine. Eventually, he was sent to prison. He was put in a cell for 60 people, but they crammed 150 people in there. He said to sleep, they all had to lay on their sides, and he was the only Christian in that cell with murderers and other criminals. And once they found out why he was in there, they too began to beat him. He said the hardest part of that was asking God, why am I here? He went on to befriend two of the other prisoners and share the gospel with them. And then it hit him, maybe, maybe that is why I'm here. And they had a library in the prison. He went and got a New Testament out of the library. They had that because they believed Jesus is a prophet. And as he read it, he found great comfort in the book of Acts about how, how God brought Peter out of prison and realized God is sovereign over even my imprisonment. He said, I felt peace in my heart because I'm a child of God. 2015, he was released. You think he stopped? He went back to his own village and continued to proclaim Christ. A group of men found him and said, you're a very bold man. We want to see your heart. And they cut open his chest. He feared going to the hospital for fear of them poisoning him, so he went home to heal. Did he stop? No, he, he enrolled himself in a Bible college and became a pastor over there in 2016. Today, he shepherds 13 house churches, and they've estimated that at least 150 people have given their lives to Jesus in that ministry. His family continues to insult him. He has to report to the court every month, and still at stake is a possible 27-year sentence or death. His response to that, he says, if it is God's plan, I am ready. 
You look at that picture in the bottom left, you see his dear family there. His five-year-old Sumaya, his mother-in-law Runa, his wife Lucina. On the left, you say, what does she think about all of this? Of course, it's grueling, but I want you to sh listen to one thing she said, her own words. That is his work to share the gospel. All the time, I am encouraging him. And he continues on to village after village. Why? In his own words, he said, our life is temporary here. I have a small amount of time to preach the gospel. I don't believe that I will stop. Here's a man who chose to do just what we talked about, to, to face his fears, to, with God's help, walk worthy of the Savior that gave his life for him, and to remember the eternal rewards. Will we make those same choices today? As we close, I want to leave you with two things. One is a resource. One of the presidents of Moody Bible Institute wrote a book that I recommend called Prepare. Living your faith in an increasingly hostile culture. It's written by Paul Nyquist. Prepare by Paul Nyquist. Secondly, I want to leave us with a prayer. Lord, I thank you that Jesus prepares his disciples. He doesn't beat around the bush or sugarcoat things as many would, but he gets right to it, what it means to follow faithfully in a fallen world. I know you love those men. I know you love your followers today, and, and, and I pray for each one as we process through this. Lord, there are fears that are felt in this room. I pray that you'd help us to face our fears and, and look through them. Or to a God who's bigger, to a God who's sovereign, to a God who's not only judge, but the father of all who trust him. Lord, I pray that you'd help us in the power of the spirit and the risen Christ to make that choice to walk worthy. It may be small choices today, in time, they may grow. Help us be faithful in the small. Help us to remember the reward, Lord, not only of walking faithfully with you, but of, of loving and ministering and welcoming those who do. This week, that might look like a workplace where, where you hear gossip about a, a Christian co-worker who's been sharing about Jesus and everybody's talking about what a bigot they are and how, how narrow-minded will we choose to stand with that brother or sister or, or stand by silently ashamed of the Savior they're mocked for. It may be at school or college where a Christian is mocked and in gossip before the stands they've taken in their life. They won't make this choice. They make this choice because they follow Jesus. What a prude. Will we stand with that person faithfully or, or sit there in ashamed silence? Will we welcome them, associate with them, love on them, stand with them? 
Well, we stand with the Omars of the world in prayer. We lift him up today, Lord, and his family, and the many others, some of whom are in prison today, some of whom are in dark, quiet rooms where the authorities could knock the doors in at any moment. Lord, may your presence be their strength. May you pour your continued courage and hope of the resurrection into them. May we be faithful in prayer in other ways to tangibly love them. And may we be faithful in our own choices, big and small, to link arms with them and say, Lord, help me face my fears. Help me walk worthy. Help me remember the reward. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. You're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. May we follow you boldly wherever you lead. As we take our offering today, may it be from surrendered hearts that say thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.